Welcome to Plural Space, Conversations in Lung Cancer. In this new limited series entitled The Power of Partnerships, we connect medical professionals and patients across the care continuum for real conversations about lung cancer. Each episode will focus on one facet of this complicated field and feature the people striving to make it better. Thanks, everyone. This is Jamie, and I want to introduce two of my dear friends and colleagues, Jim Pentelis and Jill Feldman, who will share with us a, a conversation about lung cancer stigma today. And we have decided to just have an open exchange in our discussion. And I'd like to just go ahead and start by asking Jill and Jim, what does lung cancer mean to you guys? What does lung cancer stigma mean to you? For myself, and I think Jill can probably talk about this as well, my father died of lung cancer back in 1980. And when he died, a whole bunch of people showed up at his funeral and talked about how he smoked. And now as someone with lung cancer and who has survived lung cancer for the past 15 years, I tend to look at the people in my life and wonder who they'll be at my funeral and what they'll say to my children about my smoking history, about my complicity in getting lung cancer, and about my responsibility for causing my own death. So that's what the stigma means to me, is how will you treat my children when I'm dead at my funeral, and how will you support them? Yeah, and as Jim said, I kind of have a similar experience because I was 13 when my dad died of lung cancer. And that was the first time I really experienced it when a friend basically told me that her mom said that it was my dad's fault because he smoked. You know, none of my other friends, I had a couple other friends who had lost parents, none of them had been told or asked if their parent did something to deserve to get the cancer, to deserve to die. And so for a very long time, it really prevented me from getting the support I needed, from talking about it very much. And fast forward to my mom and my aunt, and then even my own diagnosis, what it means to me now is that we are still shaming and blaming people for getting lung cancer. And with everything, all the advancements in research and advancements in treatment, there's still a stigma. And so I think this is something that it's so pervasive that we've had a hard time moving past it. It is really, really hard to get past it in lung cancer. And, you know, I hope that we can raise awareness and we could get people to see that lung cancer is a terrible disease. It's the number one cancer killer and no one deserves it. It doesn't matter whether you have a smoking history or not. That really gravitates with me in terms of it, it you know, it, it just doesn't matter in, in terms of at the time of diagnosis that 
What matters then is empathy and compassion and rallying around individuals to provide the support. Because one of the things, you know, as a psychologist, we observe. And one of the things that I noticed was something that you guys both hinted at. When I was in lung cancer clinic, the support teams were smaller. The family members was a smaller group than other clinics where I was attending. The discussions were in hushed tones. You know, there was always concern about who gets to know and who doesn't get to know because of that burden of disclosing what to diagnosis because of the sequela that it has. You know, are you going to get asked about your smoking history? Almost always. I mean, what? That is such a divisive question. Once someone discloses their lung cancer diagnosis, what? You know, I I think I have an explanation for that. We can get to that. But in what world would we respond with what comes off as an accusatory question after just an emotional disclosure like that? It's just, frankly, it's bizarro land to me and such a powerful example of how our society sees lung cancer and the relationship with tobacco. Yes. And going back to the, it doesn't matter, Jamie, you know, I guess as a child, as even a mother, the pain from watching someone you love suffer through the cruelty of lung cancer, having it yourself, it's unbearable, right? So that's why you ask, does it matter? Does it mean they deserve to die? Does it minimize the loss? Does it mean those left behind deserve less sympathy because that is exactly how stigma makes people feel. You raise such a good point about the caregiving role as well, because you guys have both been in the sphere of person with a diagnosis as well as caregiving or supporting within your family and Lord knows outside your family as well. It's just a very awkward experience for caregivers as well and their experience with stigma, you know, trying to advocate, but also having some of those own experiences and their thoughts and feelings themselves about some of these stigmatizing things. Jill, you've been doing this for a while. What seems to have changed with lung cancer stigma during your survivorship or since your dad died? I think one of the things that has changed, a very important thing that's changed, is that with the advancements in research and treatment, people are living longer and better lives. So that has given us the ability to build this army of advocates. And so we are able to come together. We are able to raise awareness. And I think we have done a great job in many ways, but I also feel like it's almost in a vacuum. So when we're trying to raise awareness about it, we're doing it within our community itself. And we're really not reaching outside the community as much as we should be. Again, while we're raising awareness a little bit at a time, we still need a greater effort to really hit society with (laughs) the realities of lung cancer. And so, you know, Jim, there has been some change, but within society, we need to do a better job. And actually with clinicians as well, because especially clinicians who aren't deep in the area of research or advocacy, they 
still, you know, look at lung cancer as nihilism or look at the stigma. So I wish I could say we were at a much better place, but I don't think we are quite yet. I tend to be torn as well because I look around and I think my dad died in 1980. I was much younger then. But when he died, there were a lot more smokers. There weren't kids that would be angry at their parents for having smoked. Since my dad died and since I got diagnosed, we've become even more separated as a society. Smokers have been kicked out of restaurants. They've been kicked out of bars. We have pictures of deformed people on the Today Show every morning brought to you by the CDC. We put those posters up in elementary schools showing deformed people to try and scare kids from starting to smoke. And here's kind of a question for you, Jamie, but I don't know anybody that has lung cancer that promotes smoking. I don't know anybody that has lung cancer or has lost someone to lung cancer that would ever be pro-smoking or pro-tobacco use. But there's a large segment of our world in the advocacy world that is very anti-tobacco that also takes a stance that creates or supports stigma. How do we bring those two sides together? You know, I think, Jim, this is an area where I think we are seeing some small progress. And I do have some hope that we are continuing to learn in the same way that immunotherapies and targeted therapies have infused opportunity and optimism and hope for a brighter future. We're also learning about how the side effects of some of our aggressive tobacco control messaging and while There's no one that's saying it didn't work. We've seen stark changes in reduction of tobacco use over time and some other risk reduction efforts. But we're learning and we need to transition to empathic communication, in my opinion, that we understand that some of the aggressive tobacco control messaging has harms for certain elements. And I continue to go back there. We would not put a chemotherapy or any other treatment on the market without fully understanding the consequences and sort of side effects of that. And and our behavioral interventions and our community and public messaging have those side effects as well. And sometimes those side effects can be enhancers. Sometimes those side effects can be detractors. And in this case, we really haven't put center focus on the fact that how does an aggressive tobacco control message impact those that have been affected already by a tobacco-related illness or tobacco-linked illness? And infusing compassion into those discussions, infusing support into those discussions. And we need to be careful about the words we use and about the images and context we use and how to design those messages and how to get those messages out there. And there are resources that are being allocated to that. I think that is another part of the equation is that we've achieved the point where we have this innovation in our community with regard to care that is building hope and optimism. And that brings with it awareness and resources. Like Jill was saying, we're tackling the nihilism with that. And there's more public communications that lung cancer is 
is not just an acceptable topic of conversation, it is an important and vital topic of conversation in families and in other settings. And that we can, you know, lace optimism and hope and innovations, all that together to overcome this challenge. Because I do think of nihilism as at very least the sibling, if not the twin of stigma. And that in many ways, that those two things are the dangers of the dual story, <laughs> if you will. About That's the only two things that our public really understands about lung cancer. It's the link with tobacco and the poor prognosis that we've experienced for decades. So our changes and improvements in care can be including survivorship and symptom management care that we have, strong data from lung cancer. This is where lung cancer is leading the way in virtually every area of of cancer control and care. And that fusion of optimism and hope and data and evidence is really the fuel we can use to continue to tackle this stigma and the sibling of nihilism. Yeah, that definitely, hopefully, is true. I have a question, Jamie, though. Going back to empathic care, which I do believe also that is absolutely critical. I feel like there is, again, when people look at lung cancer and they automatically think about smoking, if somebody does smoke, it's looked at as a behavioral thing, something somebody can control easily, something somebody chose to do. And how do we change that? A lot of people don't understand that the addiction to tobacco is almost a disease in itself. And so again, we are looking at a behavior that people think is easy to change, which is why it's become such a stigma. And so how do we change that? Those are, you know, incredibly challenging questions, but it gets right to the core of the issue in our society's relationship with tobacco, how we think and feel and deal with that. We have colleagues out of Memorial Sloan Kettering, Smita Banerjee and Jamie Ostroff, who are really working on helping our clinician community understand both the impact of the words they use and how they address tobacco and how we can infuse empathy when understanding tobacco history is important and how you ask those questions important can actually build a relationship with someone who's experiencing either risk for lung cancer or a diagnosis of lung cancer. And so we want to continue to infuse that understanding of the complexity of the relationship between tobacco and lung cancer throughout our clinical operations. Just very important that we continue to integrate as much focus on some of those things as we do in learning about our latest treatments. That someone who feels stigmatized and isolated doesn't engage their care in the same way that individuals who feel empathically supported and embraced and optimistic about their future. Can I ask a a follow-on question to that? Do you think that we're doing a disservice to every other disease that's also impacted by tobacco use by allowing such a highlight of tobacco use and lung cancer? Tobacco use is tied to a variety of other diseases and a variety of other premature death-causing events. And it seems like everybody thinks that it only ties to lung cancer. Aren't we doing kind of a disservice to everything else by ignoring everything else? 
It's interesting, Jim, because I think there are at least 22 other diseases associated with smoking, but the people who have those diseases don't get labeled, right? So I don't know if it's necessarily a disservice. I do think that anytime somebody is diagnosed with any disease, when a physician clinician is taking that health history, they ask that information. I think what I worry about the most with lung cancer is that it's not easy to eliminate the stigma if we use the stigma itself to try to eliminate it. And there will always be a stigma if we are always defined. Every single person diagnosed with lung cancer is defined by what kind of smoker they are, right? They label us as either a smoker, a former smoker, a non-smoker, a never smoker, a light smoker, whatever it is. Or a liar. Or a liar, which is very often the truth, right? Yes, we see that in records, but we're not looked at as a person first, right? And that is where I think we get into the sticky problem. We shouldn't be labeled. We are people. We are all people. And we need to change that somehow because many are harmful and they create perceptions in people's heads, which ultimately I think leads to this pervasive stigma. So I think that one of the other points that is being made is how we can make the story of lung cancer more complex and more real. Um, If we continue to allow it to be the story of tobacco and the story of poor prognosis, then we're stuck in a small two-lane road. Whereas the reality is we have other risk factors that we know about. We have other strategies that we can do to reduce risk and treat and all these other things that help our public understand a much more complex and robust story of lung cancer and why it's deserving of such a different perspective. And that goes back to what you're saying, Jill, about the tobacco dependence and nicotine dependence and how we care for that in a setting and how we need to understand that. Many individuals started that habit before we knew it was the problem that it is on a widespread basis. Now, more recently, we still have not adapted to the understanding that many folks are making the decision to use tobacco at a time when they really haven't fully developed their cognitive skills to make long-term choices about benefits and harms of our behavior. And so I guess I am trying to help us understand the responsibility and infuse those discussions with empathy and understanding in a productive way that actually helps people and embraces people rather than that process of othering, that differentiating, that somehow somebody with a smoking history is less than any other group and how we need to infuse those situations with as much empathy. Shame does not change behavior in the way we want it to. Empathy has the potential to change behavior in the way that is both productive for the individual and the community and other things. But shame is rarely the avenue for this setting. So I want to ask you guys a tough question. What deflates you 
about lung cancer stigma? What takes the air out of your sails with regard to this lung cancer stigma challenge? You know, I think for me, one of the things that is so frustrating is, you know, this stigma is top down from the government down to the general public. And it's so strong that people who are diagnosed that have never smoked are forced to immediately and constantly say, I never smoked to avoid what people are going to ask, which is, did you smoke? And that implies the self-infliction. So it's really divisive within the lung cancer community itself. And so I think that that has been really difficult for me to see as somebody who's been in advocacy for 20 years. And when I first started in advocacy, there were a lot of people who had a smoking history that were advocates. And as Jim mentioned earlier, I believe that now a lot of advocates, the majority of advocates, I would say, are the ones that have never smoked and they are out there and they are angry, rightfully so. But the divisiveness is really sad because when someone is forced to heavily emphasize that they never smoke, the message being sent to 85% of people diagnosed with lung cancer who have some type of smoking history is you are the ones that deserve lung cancer. And it is certainly not the intention at all. But that is what's happening when people say that to validate the fact that they're diagnosed with lung cancer. And it's horrible. We need to unite as one community. Our voice is bigger, it's stronger, it's louder. And again, even within the community, it doesn't matter how somebody gets lung cancer. I mean, cancer is complicated. There is no simple cause and effect. So we really need to focus on education and awareness and support. Those things are what matter. And so I would say that is really the divisiveness within the community that I've seen happen over, you know, the past couple of decades is really what deflates me. I think if I were to comment on two sides, one is the preventability of the disease. Society seems to think that lung cancer is a preventable disease because it's a tobacco-related disease. Therefore, it doesn't need or deserve the research, the funding, or the emphasis of a non-preventable disease. And I think that we need to, within our community, stop using the word preventable. And that means from the smoking cessation community to the care community to the clinicians, we should stop using that word. The other side is that I happen to work with a leading oncologist from a leading research institute who told me that he had been dealing with lung cancer for decades and that he knew that anyone that told him that they were a never smoker was lying. 
So I think our efforts have to go outside of our immediate community and into the medical community. We need to be able to influence the people that are supposed to be taking care of us. We need to be able to influence them from med school or undergrad and up in the truth about this disease. It is influenced by tobacco use. I won't argue against that. But the reality is, is that all you need is lungs to get lung cancer. It's enormously frustrating to watch people that are supposed to be on my side say stupid things. Yeah, it's hurtful. And, you know, I'd like to add to kind of the other thing that deflates me as well. And this kind of goes to an area of what we can do about it. And one of the things is I think, you know, media are a vital conduit for health information and lung cancer is a major health issue. It's the number one cancer killer, yet there hasn't been this health alert to educate the public. So I think that that really is something that's frustrating to me. And another thing is it's maddening that there are celebrities affected by lung cancer who are respected and influential voices and who could reach a large audience and really make a difference, but they aren't stepping up to the plate and speaking out for lung cancer. And it's disheartening because they're the very people that could easily provoke change and become our champions. Yet they're actually perpetuating stigma and making things worse by avoiding any affiliation with the disease. Yeah, that that public piece, you guys have both mentioned several times of making lung cancer part of the public conversation in a way that draws it more attention. And Jim, you highlighted the structural stigma implications of stigma in terms of a lack of resources that are allocated. And I want to go back to another thing that you said about some of the words and particularly that term preventable, because it is a very commonly used term in cancer prevention and control. And I got to tell you, that was a real hard one for me. But I can vividly remember the first time one of our dear friends confronted me about the use of that. And I struggled and I've struggled for years, but I think I've mostly been able to eradicate that term in favor of risk reduction. And I think it's a productive change because this is one of those words that was so ingrained into my training that it was hard to let go of. But it's not a sacred cow. We can make those changes to be more accurate and reflective and engaging and empathic. Because I'll just cut to the chase. I don't think there's any one solution to this. Mm -hmm. This is a societal problem. It's going to take a host of different strategies to reduce the development of stigma into how we change and think about our society, as well as while we do that, mitigate those consequences and the repercussions of the stigma that's already there. But one of those things is the language guide that fundamentally calls attention to the fact that words matter clinically, words matter in the public discourse and in the research and science discourse and all these different domains. Jill, would you talk a little bit about the language guide as one of the solutions? Yeah, so the language guide was a huge collaborative effort by many from different disciplines. And it is 
really guidelines on best practices with common words and phrases used during presentations at ISLAC conferences and within submitted abstracts. And so what is important about the language guide, it's not an exhausted list of do's and don'ts. It's really bringing the attention to clinicians, researchers, scientists about the words they use and how they're used and really trying to foster this improvement of quality care because, again, it starts with, I think, the words you use, the perceptions in your mind when you read or write something, and really focusing on person-first language, putting the person before the disease and eliminating that blame language And when you talk about prevention, you know, we understand that some of us understand it'd be helpful if more of us did that prevention is population centered, right? And I know that's why you use it in research, but risk reduction is more centered around the individual person. We're in the era of personalized medicine. So it's really important to think about it that way. And ending the stigma, that is huge, that unintended consequence of the tobacco cessation programs that have been so successful. So just promoting that blame-free, judgment-free language. This language guide is fluid. It's just the start, right? It's also, you know, in the language guide, we mentioned practicing cultural humility and best practices regarding race, ethnicity, gender, socioeconomic, and geographic descriptions. So I guess the hope in creating this guide is that many of the key opinion leaders will model this behavior. Change in progress does not happen overnight, and we all understand that, but it does start with the decision to try. And we're all going to make mistakes, but if we can model the right way to change those mistakes, then I do believe ultimately people will be able to follow it and do better. The one thing I love about the guide, and I really do love just about all of the document, but the idea that someone is or is not a smoker always struck me as really odd. A smoker is what you cure meat in. Uh, It's not an individual. An individual might be a tobacco user, might not be a tobacco user, might be a never tobacco user, but they're not a smoker. And even to self-identify as, I was a never smoker. Well, I'm glad that you didn't smoke. You weren't close enough to the fire. I don't know. But it just seems more respectful. When we take shortcuts, calling someone a smoker is a shortcut. It's a shortcut to, you're not like me. Mm -hmm. or I won't get it. I can't get lung cancer because I'm not like you. Making it personal helps. 
Yeah. And Jim, you bring up a really good point as well. I think the stigma creates barrier into the research for the other risk factors of lung cancer, but it also leaves people with this false misbelief that if I don't smoke, I won't get lung cancer. And that is dangerous because anybody can get lung cancer. And we know that if you have lungs, you're at risk. So that definitely is another area where the stigma is deadly. One of the other things that gives me some hope is the infusion of resources, financial, intellectual, time that has gone into addressing this challenge, recognizing that it is the big gray cloud that impedes our ability to see the sunlight in risk reduction, in early detection, in treatment, stratifying our disease so we can hit those targets more effectively into providing top-notch palliative care, symptom management, and supporting people's survivorship along the way. And I think, you know, through the National Lung Cancer Roundtable, the efforts of ISLAC, other organizations we have leading, you know, some of our advocacy organizations have been doing a stigma dance for a long time. And I think, you know, there are other groups that are a little bit later into the recognition of its importance. But if we can all work together and if we can all put our thoughts and perspectives into this, we have a chance to stop it from developing, stop it from impacting our care. And I think really what we're talking about on a, on a grand scale is culture change. And it's going to take a lot of different approaches to doing it, working with clinicians, working with advocacy groups, working with community, working with media, working with our trainees in medicine and nursing and physical therapy therapy and psychology to change how we think and to modify those conventions that we've all developed that are shortcuts that are disrespectful to people and actually impede our ability to deliver the care that we hope to be delivering. That's the thing that helps me think that we are turning a corner because we're starting to do things More people are reflecting on this challenge now. We're seeing more people talk about it in terms of some of our leading clinicians, our leading scientists are getting the message and feeling the impact and making changes. And we just hope to continue to perfuse that um, until it actually um, sees some changes in in society-wide. I want to thank you guys for the time. Rarely do I have as much joy and fun is talking with you guys about these things that matter so much. I still prefer we didn't have to talk about them, but since we do, talking with you guys is a joy because you have so much insight into this challenge and this opportunity to move forward. So Jim, Jill, any final comments? I would just say that I'm a former tobacco user. I haven't smoked a cigarette in over 20 years, except in my dreams. In my dreams, I'm still a full-time tobacco user, and I tend to chain smoke in my dreams because somewhere in my brain, I know that when I wake up, I won't be able to. I mention that because that's how pervasive the addiction is. That 20 years after the fact, I still identify in my subconscious as a tobacco user, and I would really appreciate if people could understand that 
quitting was one of the toughest things I've ever done in my life. And I've done some tough things. And that the option of quitting is not as easy as it sounds for such a large portion of our population. So empathy really is the key here. Thank you for sharing that, Jim. I think it is so important to recognize that. And I think it's also so important for people like you to speak out because it humanizes it, right? And that's the thing. I think we have to stop talking about it and start sharing stories. And that is reality. And that is lung cancer. So, Jamie, thank you for having us on today and for talking about stigma. Again, I think this conversation, the more conversations we have, hopefully will lead to more action. And what we need to do is focus on education and awareness and the words that we use because they do matter. And we as patients and our families need to believe that there is hope that things can change. And as a lung cancer community, we need to stand united as one team with one voice. And so, you know, Jim and I are in it for the long haul, whatever it takes. Great work, guys, and much energy to you guys for your sustained efforts and continuing efforts. And if you haven't had a chance to check out the language guide, please do. It's on the IASLC website and there's links everywhere. So thank you and have a great day. Plural Space is a joint production by the American College of Radiology and the National Lung Cancer Roundtable. Episodes were produced by Hannah Burson with series production assistance by Tiffany Gowan, Lauren Rosenthal, and Kenley Byrne. Editing of this series is by Port City Films. A webinar on this episode's topic, as well as additional information, can be found at the link in the episode description. (laughs) 